You are listening to audio from Life Community Church located in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about our ministry or to financially support God's ministry through us, please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org. You'll now join Pastor Reed Bradley as he brings us the message for today. All right, everybody. It's a joy to have you with us this morning. Go ahead, find your way back to your seat. We got a lot of fellowship we're going to be able to have afterwards as well. It's an exciting time to be here. And as we get ready, we're going to be going into God's Word. We're going to be continuing in our series through the book of Luke. And as we get ready to approach that, let me go ahead and say a word of prayer for us. Lord God, we ask as we come to your word that you would sow it upon us, that it would sink deep into our hearts, that it would grow and be fruitful in our lives, that it would be transformative for us, empowering for us, that it would draw us closer to you with each word and every syllable. Lord God, we thank you for this time that we can come together in your name and in your presence. We ask that you would be magnified by all of these things. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. If you want to, go ahead and get a Bible out or your app or whatever it is. Get in there and get to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we're going to be in verse 35 here in a moment. My name is Reed Bradley. I'm one of the pastors here at Life, and I'm excited to be walking us through this passage as we get going here this morning. We're actually going to be starting at the end of chapter 18, and we're going to be covering three sections that I think all tie together as a final episode in the travel section of the book of Luke. If you remember or have been here with us as we've been studying through the book of Luke, we have entered into this section, and we've been talking about the fact that at this point, Jesus is moving to Jerusalem. He is on his way to that final week, that Passover week, where he will ultimately be betrayed, crucified, and the third day later after that, raised from the dead. And he is telling his disciples repeatedly over the course of this travel that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die, that he is going to raise from the dead. And here at this final moment of the journey, they are getting close to Jerusalem, and they have one final stop at a city called Jericho. Jericho, which you may be familiar with, where the walls came tumbling down and Joshua fought the battle of and many, many more things. This is the less ancient town of Jericho, rebuilt at great expense by those who tried to build upon that broken foundation. And here in the ancient times, it was often a stop along the way to Jerusalem for many pilgrims who were going there. And so Jesus, along with his disciples and those who were following with him, approach Jericho and get ready sort of for their final stop on the way to Jerusalem, their final moment of rest before that week of Passover begins. And so with that in mind, We're going to begin reading, and what we're going to be doing this morning is I'm going to give you sort of headings as we're going through these different sections of what is the focus. In the first section, I want us to see we encounter a blind 
beggar, a blind beggar. And as we read through, I'm not going to just read all the way through, but I'm going to pause here and there to note certain things and bring things to your attention. We're going to read through each of our three sections, and at the conclusion of those things, I want to share some thoughts with you about what I believe we need to consider in light of these passages and how God has preserved them for us. With all that said, we're going to be here in chapter 18, starting in verse 35. We're going to read 35 through the end of the chapter here. So, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. This is a commonplace occurrence in the ancient world. You stand, you sit by the roadside on the entrance to the town, right, or the exit, and that's where all the traffic is, right? You see beggars doing the same thing today, except you do it at intersections, oftentimes, no matter how much people try to stop it. They'll stand right there. Why? Because that's where the traffic is. That's where the people stop. That's where you catch people coming and going. So here's this blind man sitting by the roadside. He's begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. I mean, you would hear travelers coming in. He knew what time it was. He knew the season that he was in. But a large crowd, larger than usual, was gathering around. And you've got to imagine that for somebody who is blind and he just hears the hustle and bustle going on around him. He's curious and he begins to ask and he inquires what was going on. Verse 37, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Verse 38, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You'll notice there's a distinction between what the blind man yells and the name that the crowd gave him. They said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Jesus, son of David. He immediately knows this is the guy who's supposed to be this Messiah. He's the heir to the throne of David. This is the one that I've heard people talking about. This is not just any traveler passing by. And he begins to shout. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped, verse 40, and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Verse 42, And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. This is something it's kind of hard for us to put from the Greek into the English, but he literally just says, see, look, open your eyes. You can see. Your faith has saved you. Literally, I'm mentioning that because we'll see that in a few moments again. Look, your faith has saved you. And immediately, verse 43, he recovered his sight and he followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Jesus, in this final moments approaching Jerusalem, the last stop along the way, encounters this blind beggar. Someone who wasn't looking for Jesus, wasn't expecting him to come along, had no real way to get to Jesus, 
But at just the thought that Jesus might be passing by his way, took every opportunity he had to take advantage of it. Shouting, forfeiting any level of dignity that a beggar might have, annoying everyone around him, just at the chance that Jesus might hear him. And not only does Jesus hear him, but he stops. He gives him the mercy that he seeks. And this desperate man regains his sight and is able to stand and then follows Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, here now stopping in Jericho. The first of two desperate men to encounter Jesus. But we encounter still another one here in the beginning of chapter 19. This one is not a blind beggar who would have been on the bottom rungs of society, but a short tax collector. Not just any tax collector, but a chief tax collector. And here we encounter him at the beginning of chapter 19. He, this is Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And so we've moved from the outside Going into Jericho now. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. It's important to note here, and I would point you back to Pastor Ryan's sermon last week where he did an excellent job talking about the tax collectors in the ancient world and how we ourselves don't have necessarily super fond feelings of tax collectors. No offense if you are somebody who works for the IRS. But in the ancient world, it was much, much worse because they worked for the Romans, who were the enemies and the oppressors of God's people. They had come in with sword and taken over the land and enforced and extracted taxes. And what's worse was the way the tax collectors made their money was by taking more than what they were supposed to take. The Romans would say, here's what you need to get from them. Anything else you get is yours. And that was the deal that they had worked out. And Zacchaeus is noted here, not just because he's a tax collector, but because he's a chief tax collector. He's a tax collector who has other tax collectors reporting to him. He's risen through the ranks, so to speak. And not only that, we know that he is rich, implying, of course, that He is a very wicked and wretched individual. Continuing on in verse 3. And he, Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. We have here another individual, this one of high esteem, wealthy, not well thought of, but well off. And he, like the blind beggar, abandons all sense of dignity, runs ahead of the crowd, and climbs up a tree, a sycamore tree, which is not like a really clean tree to climb if you look into it. 
They're often covered in saps. They could be prickly. It's not a pleasant tree by any stretch to be climbing. And you've got to imagine that for somebody who is rich, who perhaps is not used to getting their hands dirty in these ways, this is an unpleasant experience for Zacchaeus. But he rushes to it. Why? Because he feels this desperation to see Jesus. He goes, he runs, he climbs up. And then in verse 5, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus was so worried and so concerned that he would get a chance just to see this Jesus, to see what Jesus was about. And yet here, Jesus stops, looks, and knows Zacchaeus. What's even more amazing, he then invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus rushes to receive him. He hurries and came down and received him joyfully. Verse 7, And when he saw it, and when they saw it, the crowds around them, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus, verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The short tax collector, desperate to find out about who this Jesus was, and when he encounters him, is forever changed. Radically so, in the fact that all of what he had worked his life toward, forfeiting any sense of familial loyalties, of standing with his people, all to gain this wealth. And here, in a moment, in a chance by his mind encounter with Jesus, gives it away. All that he had worked his life for. Half of it, Jesus, I don't need this anymore. And not only am I going to do that, but I recognize also I've sinned against all of these other people, and so I'm going to repay. I'm not going to just repay back what the law would require of me. I'm going to repay back four times. I'm going to give back to these people that I had slighted and whom I have taken from. It's all an illustration of this faith that Zacchaeus has in Christ. Not only do you see it in the response of the fact that he's abandoning his wickedness, but also he no longer needs to rely on any of these things or worry about any of these things, but trusts in Jesus for the provision, trusts in God. God has provided me with everything I need, and therefore I do not need to cling on to these things. Salvation has come to this house, is what Jesus replies with. He notes that this faith, just like the faith of the beggar who called out 
because it's in the right person, because it's in Christ, brings salvation. And so we have these two desperate men, but what we have that follows in this passage is a parable. And this is where I want us to spend the majority of our time here. We're going to read through the parable, and I want us to consider a few things and how this connects to Zacchaeus and to this blind beggar, because it's in the context of these two encounters that Jesus has that he then teaches this parable. You'll notice some of the things uh, might seem familiar. Maybe you've read a similar parable in another gospel account, but this one is unique and different, and Jesus does use similar illustrations in different contexts to different groups of people. And so while he teaches the parable of the talents, as it's often referred to, to his disciples specifically, here he teaches all of the people this parable. And so in verse 11, we're going to be reading and beginning this parable. As they heard these things, the the crowd, the people around him, the people who had gathered and seen and wondered and grumbled against Jesus for going and staying at this great sinner's house. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus is going to ride in. Many of them had political visions of the Messiah, and so they thought, well, he's going to ride in, he's going to kick out all the Romans, and Jerusalem, starting there, and then expanding out, Israel is going to be reinstated, we're going to have all of the greatness of an eternal kingdom starting now. Many had confusion about who Jesus was and what his mission was. Verse 12, he said, therefore, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, this is a parable that connects to them in their ancient times directly, as many parables would. And we understand, at first glance, at first reading, we can understand these parables pretty well, right? But I want to give you just a little bit of a layer of historical context so that you can see there's even a little bit more to it than what you might read at first glance. Right? You see, Jericho specifically would have been very nearby the territory of Archelaus, who was the son of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, if you remember from the story of Jesus' birth, sought to kill Jesus. And when Herod was made king over Judea, he had to go to Rome to be confirmed that he would get to be king, and then came back in order to be king. Judea was an occupied territory, and so Herod couldn't simply declare himself king. He had to go get affirmed and confirmed by the emperor. The emperor was the real authority, and so he had to go receive that and then come back. Well, when Herod the Great died, his son, Archelaus, one of several sons, thought, well, I'm going to go do the same thing. And so he went over to Rome, And what happened was all of the Jews really hated him, specifically him. I don't know how much they hated the other sons of Herod as much as they hated Archelaus, but they said, we do not want this guy to be our king. And so they sent a whole group of people to follow him to Rome to complain to Caesar, no, we don't want him to be confirmed as king. 
and he wasn't. And so he was sent back, not as king, but as the Tetrarch, as sort of just the ruler of that little region, and his other brothers got the other areas. And so they all, when they hear this story, they're like, oh man, we know how this is going to go, right? Archelaus, that guy, we stopped him from being king. He thought he was going to be confirmed. And so this nobleman, he goes away to receive a kingdom and then return. And they think, all right, we know how this story is going to go. And in verse 13, the parable continues. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. A mina is about three months wages or so. All right, uh, much less amount than if you consider the parable of the talents. A talent was a much larger sum of money than a mina. But here, this is still pretty significant, about three months. Ten minas to ten servants. Engage in business until I come. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. All right, it's checking all the boxes. They're hearing this story and they're like, oh yeah, Archelaus, we got it. We get the reference, Jesus, we're following with you. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, all right, now we're in uncharted territory. He receives the kingdom. Okay, this is different. He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. We're starting to get a feel for this nobleman, somebody who is extremely generous. I mean, I don't know about you, but the most I've ever gotten from any boss is maybe like a little bit of a raise. Definitely never like 10 cities or just any amount of cities or just one city. Never gotten that from doing a good job or multiplying what I had to work with. And so we have here a, a, a nobleman who's beginning to be pictured as very generous, as extremely, extremely wise and shrewd in the way that he deals with his servants. Those who do well receive more. Verse 18, the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Wow, okay. And then another came. We don't get his number. You got to wonder if he was right after the guy who came with the 10 and the guy who came with the five. That seems like you would recognize that what you're about to do is not the best idea. We don't know. But he came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? 23. Why then did you not put money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by him, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. 
And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minus. Verse 26, I'll tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And this is the conclusion of his parable as he gets ready to go into Jerusalem. An intense one, one that we can recognize the obvious signs that there's something about stewardship, about taking care of God's resources here. But I think we want to consider a couple different things. And so what I want for us to do is first, we're going to talk a little bit about Christ and focus on him as he's depicted in this parable and in these passages. And then we're going to move from there and we're going to talk about our response to Christ. And so for the, for the first section, I want you to consider this title, which is, What's Yours is Mina. All right, what's yours is mine. What we see in Christ here is an incredible and beautiful picture. The first thing that we see is that Christ stops to give mercy. So many times in our life, it is easy for us to think that God is too busy for us. That Surely other people have more need for Christ or that he's doing something for them. Maybe they're better performers in some sense, right? We see them, we're like, those are the servants with the, with the 10 minus. I, you know, I'm not on that level. Jesus cares more about them. Or maybe we think we're too far gone. But what I want us to see and what I want us to consider is that Jesus is a person. He is a king. He is a God who stops to give mercy. In fact, you see this repeated over and over and over again throughout the scriptures that Jesus frequently stops and takes time for the one person who needs it. He stops and brings the blind man to him. He pauses his mission to go to Jerusalem to connect with this blind man, to give him his sight. He stops to give mercy. The second thing I want us to see about Christ here is not only does he stop to give mercy, but he comes to bring salvation. In fact, it's the very goal that Christ gives at the end of the story of Zacchaeus. Christ The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He comes to bring salvation. He stops to give mercy, but he comes to bring salvation. And in these first two points, we have to recognize our own desperate estate. That if you do not realize that as we read in these passages that we are like the blind man, that we are like the tax collector we will fail to realize our desperate need of this very Jesus. And most assuredly, there are times and there are seasons in our lives when we recognize this more than others. There are times when we recognize our desperation and we call out to God. 
But there are also times and there are seasons where we think we have it together. Or perhaps we don't feel we have it together, but we feel like we should have it together. It feels a little embarrassing to call out to Jesus if we feel like we ought to be able to handle it. We want to do it ourselves. We want to have some sense of independence, to feel some sense of progress, and so we hold back. But it is not required of us to live in such a way. Christ is the one who stops to give mercy. Christ is the one who comes to bring salvation. We also see that Christ is the one He's the noble man in the parable, and he entrusts. He entrusts us with what? With his word, with the Holy Spirit. And truthfully, we could list blessing upon blessing upon blessing in this category. But I want to speak specifically to those two things, because these are things that are not unique to any one of us. It's something we all are given as believers. God, the Holy Spirit, to come and to indwell us and transform us. And the word of God. We are blessed, especially here in this country, to have it written in such a way that it's preserved for us, that we can go to it on a daily basis, but it is given to us by God. Each servant in the parable receives the same thing. They receive the same thing. And what's amazing about it is as the servants come in this parable, one of the things that's unique in this one versus the parable of the talents is the servants say, your mina has made more. Your, your mina has made ten minas. In the talents, they say, well, I have done this. The servants take a little bit more credit. Here, it's just like the mina just multiplied. right? How did it do it? We went and did business and the mina multiplied and now we got ten. The mina multiplied, and now we got five. It just goes. If you just let the mina go, it multiplies. The only mina that we're given that doesn't multiply is the one that is kept back from the business it's supposed to be engaging in. And God, through Christ and through his work, has given us his word and his Holy Spirit. Each and every one of us, he's entrusted it to us. We have a Christ who stops to give mercy. We have a Christ who comes to bring salvation. A Christ who entrusts us with incredible treasures and gifts of his word and the Holy Spirit. And we also have here an important fact that Christ will return as king. That when Christ returns, it will be as king and it will be as in the, the fullness of his glory. He's not going to come a second time as an infant. He's not going to come a second time to die on the cross again. But he will come as a king. We need to be diligent. We need to be faithful as people who would follow that king, who would serve that king. Jesus is trying to emphasize here to these people that, yes, I'm going to go and ascend, but I'm going to come back. And I'm going to come back as king. That's going to mean judgment on the enemies of God. That's going to mean praise and a lifting up of the people of God who he finds faithful upon his return. 
And I really want to emphasize for you that whether or not you think the return of Jesus and the judgment before his throne is good news or bad news really depends on whether you, disl- you delight in Christ or whether you disdain him. Whether you think that Christ is lovely and wonderful and you desire him with desperation or whether you don't particularly like him or want him to be king at all. While there are three groups of people in the parable, there's really just two. There are the faithful servants and there are those who don't really want the nobleman, Christ, to be king. And we see that the picture that the wicked servant paints of the nobleman is, in fact, not accurate of the person he serves. That a person who is generous and gives cities upon doing a good job doesn't match the description of somebody who is so stingy and so harsh. Our view of Christ will determine how we see the idea of his return. And if the return of Christ doesn't fill you with joy, I would put it forward to you that you don't really understand Christ or yourself. That when we begin by seeing ourselves in this desperate estate, we need that mercy, we need that salvation. When we see that and we see that Christ brings those things into our life, the appropriate and natural response in all of those things is delight, is joy. And so if this is Christ, the Christ who stops to bring mercy, who comes to bring salvation into our lives, if this is Christ who entrusts us with his word and the Holy Spirit, this is the Christ who will return as king, then what is our appropriate response? How can we show ourselves to be faithful in awaiting his response? And so I want to give us some things to consider here. In this section, I'll title it, Mind Your Minus. Okay, Mind Your Minus. What are we going to do in the meantime? Because we recognize, okay, Christ has ascended. He's, he's been raised from the dead. God has confirmed him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. Everything that Jesus has said and taught has been confirmed and affirmed by God who raised him from the grave. And so in doing all those things, he raises him from the grave and then ascends him up to the right hand of the Father to sit on his throne. So he is king now, confirmed to reign forever. And when he returns, he brings that kingdom in all of its fullness to completion for eternity. And so we know that's coming. And so what do we do? The first thing I want us to consider is we should do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. If we're blind and we're beside the road and you hear that Jesus is coming by, shout, scream, do whatever you can. Don't remain silent. Don't stand there. Are you desperate enough to climb and get your hands dirty? Climb up as high as you can. Look like an idiot. Is 
Does it bother you what other people are going to say about you if you make yourself look like a fool? If that's what it takes to get to Jesus? In some of his other teachings, Jesus talked about the severity of sin and what it meant to turn away from it in your life. He said, you know, if, if it was your hand that was causing you to sin, if that's what keeps you from God, cut your hand off. Is it your eye? Is it your eye's fault? Then take your eye out. Whatever it takes, it would be better to be one-handed and be with Jesus than to have both and be apart from him. It would be better to have one eye or no eyes and be with Jesus than it would be to have your sight and miss it. Whatever it takes, get to Jesus. But it doesn't just stop there because the reality is Jesus comes to you. He sees you where you are in the midst of your life and the mess that you might make of it. Jesus sees you. It's not up to you to get to Jesus. We have to start with that attitude of surrender, of recognizing the desperate nature of where we're at. But Jesus comes to you. He says, hey, I need to stay at your house. Yeah, your life, that's just a train wreck. I'm going to set up camp here. I'm going to make my home right here in the middle of your life. In the middle of this mess, we're going to clean it up. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to save you. I'm going to redeem you. So, so get down from the tree and let's go. See, open your eyes. Can we have the attitude of the blind beggar, of Zacchaeus, who jump up and follow joyfully, who, who receive Jesus with such joy and such passion that it radically transforms and changes the trajectory of our lives? If we can't start at the beginning and recognizing where we are and then recognizing the good news of who Jesus was, none of the obedience or the things that scriptures require of us are going to follow. What is the difference between the first and the second servant and the wicked servant? It's their view of who the nobleman is. The first two servants delight in him. They recognize their undeserving nature that, that their king-to-be, their master, has entrusted them with something precious. And they love him, and so they go, and they go about business, investing that mina, seeing it multiplied. But the wicked servant sees the harsh taskmaster, sees the obedience required as something that is chafing, that is irritating, that is something to be avoided. And I think if we're honest, so many times when Christ calls us to a standard towards obedience in different ways. We feel that way. We buy into the way the world has painted Christ. 
and the laws of God as if they were something that were odious and burdensome. Rather, rather than something that was joyful and to be pursued, that as the psalmist says, your law is a joy to me. I love your law. I want to spend all of my life just thinking about your law and thinking about your character, God. When you see Jesus as he is, when you recognize what he has done for you, then you can receive joyfully Christ. And the last thing I want to say is that we need to be a people who invest vigorously in the kingdom of God. Invest vigorously in the kingdom of God. I'm going to give you three things really quick here. They're not going to be on the screen. I'm going to try and make it easy for you to remember. These are all centered on that idea that God's word is one of the central minas that, that God has given you. He's given you his word. You can have access to it. If you don't have a physical one, take one from the pew. Take it home with you. Okay, if you want to go look it up online, how, you've got so many ways. All right, you got access to the word. I don't think any of us have an excuse. All right, so what do we need to do? How can we take that and invest it in such a way that it multiplies in our life? The first thing, soak in the word. Don't just don't just sip on it. Don't just take little bits. Don't just come on Sunday mornings and get some. Soak in it. If you're ever sitting here on a Sunday morning and you think, how does Pastor Ryan see these things? They're so obvious once he says them, but how does he see them? Because when I read the Bible, I don't see these things. It's because he soaks in it. He soaks in the Word. I don't even know how many times I've read this passage over the course of this week. I'm not saying that as a point of bragging. God gave me His Word. I'm just a servant. Soak in it. Soak in it. Second thing, share the word. Soak first, share second. Who do you share it with? Everybody. People get so worried that they need to share with the right people and share the right things. Just share with the first person you see. Share with the people that are close to you. Share with the people that you share all the things in your life that you value. Start by sharing with them. If you can't share with them, you're not going to share with the strangers. You're not going to share with the coworkers. You're not going to share with the people who don't even know that you go to church on the weekends if you can't share with the people that are in the church. So just, just start sharing. Soak, share. And the last thing I want to say is sweat the word. Because the goal, as you are soaking in the word, is that you will have so much of the word in you, that when you are pressed and when it is hard, it just comes out of your pores. Just like the sponge that you pull out of the bath and you press down on the sponge, and what comes out? The water that it was soaking in. And that should be you in your life. God takes you and he says, look, I'm going to put some pressure on you. There's going to be some stuff, but I'm going to bring you through it. And when the pressure goes on, the word goes out. Start there. There's so many ways. It's a, it's a vague concept. Go do business until I come back. It's going to look different for each and every one of us. Some of us who are married need to take into consideration that marriage as part of the ministry that God has put us over, and we need to invest and do business there. If you're a parent, you need to be doing business there. If you're employed, you need to be doing business there. 
Not simply the business that you're hired to do, but the business that God redeemed you to do. Start at the word and the rest will follow. God will give you wisdom. He who has began the good work in you will complete it. He has prepared the good works for you. Pastor Ryan read that passage in Ephesians at the beginning of service. He's prepared the works that you would walk in them. And so Christ has given us what we need. He has invited us to be stewards, to take care of the resources that he's given us. And he's given it to each and every one of us. This isn't a pastor thing. This isn't a missionary thing. This isn't for the super Christians. This is for every Christian. Any who would follow Christ, this is their call. I'm going to say a prayer for us, and we're going to have a song of response. Lord God, I ask that you would allow that word that you have given us and entrusted us, that it would sink deep into our hearts, that it would be something that we would come back to over the course of the week, that we would soak in it, that it would be something that we would meditate on, that we would think and come back to over and over and over again, Lord God. Bless us and be glorified in our lives. Help us to seek you in all that we do and to spread your kingdom far and wide. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Life Community Church Alexandria. We believe that there should be no anonymous Christians, so we would love for you to visit and worship with us Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org for more information. Thank you and God bless.